I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, men, with your wife, where Valentine's Day comes around and you get a card that is not personalized at all, but you sign your name to the end of it. And there's something inherently less special about a card that's not handwritten. Even if you took that card, bought it, and copied it down in your own handwriting, there's a pro tip for you, um, it would mean so much more than if it was just this printed card with your name signed to it. There's something about handwritten letters. The most expensive handwritten letter to ever sell at an auction uh, sold in 2013 for 5.3 million dollars. It was a letter from a man named Francis Crick to his son right after he discovered DNA. It even had the double helix drawn in it. It was this momentous occasion, and yet even though it's the most expensive, I would not consider it the most valuable. You see, in the New Testament, we have letters written from the apostles to the churches and to individuals to guide us in what it looks like to follow Jesus. And today we're going to look at some of those. Um, last week, so we'd, we'd kind of been moving through this series from the beginning of Genesis to now. We've walked through the story of Scripture. And in the New Testament, Jesus lives his life. Uh, he dies on the cross for the sins of the world. He's resurrected, and then he ascends to heaven. And after he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes into the lives of the believers, and the church begins to spread like wildfire. And this man who was persecuting the church named Saul of Tarsus, um, God rescues him on his way to Damascus, calls him out of his sin into a life with Jesus, and that's where we meet the Apostle Paul is who he becomes. The greatest church planter and missionary who ever lived. And he planted churches in Asia, in Southern Europe, and in the Middle East. And God sovereignly preserved 13 letters that he wrote to churches to guide us in what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it might not seem like that's necessary, but his, his letters were mostly written to Gentiles. And Gentiles didn't grow up uh, like many of us did in a kind of church setting where they would have known the do's and don'ts of what it looks like to follow God. They didn't know any of that. I've heard stories, uh, specifically I, I read a story in a book about a church in East Africa that a man had gone on a mission trip to preach at, and while he was there, he noticed that there was just this rampant immorality within the church. Even in the pastor of the church and in the leadership of the church, people just kind of lived however they wanted, but then they would all meet and worship. And he'd asked around, whoa, how could these people just live in sin and disobedience when they're, they're a church, they're following you, and they said, well, they don't have a Bible, See, these people don't have a Bible in their language, and so their pastor has just memorized six Bible stories, and he just rotates them and teaches one a week. It's easy to think that these letters don't guide us, but they still guide us today in our personal walks and as a church. So the, old, the New Testament is, is organized in this way. It's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the earthly life and ministry of Jesus including his death, burial, and resurrection. And then it moves into Acts. Acts is Luke part two, written by the same guy. Literally, uh, it's just short for the Acts of the Apostles. It's the story of the early church. 
And then from that point on, it's letters written from apostles. In these 13 letters of Paul, they're organized actually by size. So the book of Romans is the longest, that's why it's first. The book of Philemon is the shortest, that's why it's last. And so as we're kind of getting to what what you saw on the screen is the end of Paul's life. The end of his earthly ministry. As, As we get to this point, we have to ask ourselves, like, where do we pick up? Which one do we pick out of these 13? Well, last week we kind of began in Philippians chapter 3, and so the story went like this, and we'll pick up on it today. It was just Paul's autobiography, his story of who he was before Jesus and what happened after that. And so Paul uh, boasts about having been, actually he, he points out he's not boasting about it, but he says, I was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I stayed at the feet of the best scholar you've ever known, and he's kind of building up all these things that everyone would go, this dude has four Super Bowl rings spiritually. This, this guy knows the Hebrew and Greek. He learned French and Latin and German for fun and Aramaic. This guy is a scholar. He has all of these things that all of us would just long to have. And he says, all of it, all of it's rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. See, it's easy to get caught up in this idea that this worldly gain will somehow satisfy our souls, but it was never meant to. Good things that become ultimate things are called idols. They're things that can never live up to the promises of what God says he can give us. And so as we kind of look at this story of of Paul and how he knows that all of that's rubbish, none of it matters compared to knowing Jesus, we're going to pick up in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature in this way, let those of us who are mature in this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. There are a lot of us in this room today as we prepare to move into these points that feel stuck. Maybe you feel stuck in a broken relationship or in a job that you feel like is dead end or doesn't doesn't help you spiritually in some way. Maybe you feel stuck in debt. It could even be an emotional rut, but but I submit that the most dangerous and difficult and saddening way that we get stuck is in a spiritual rut. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that being in a spiritual rut makes all of those other things feel like a deeper rut. That they're all symptoms of a spiritual problem. Well, today we're going to see in this text that we just read that that Paul gives us five specific encouragements if we're in a spiritual rut. So if that's you, number one, you're in good company because that's most of us all the time. And two, you've come to the right place because we have encouragement for this. The first point today that Paul gives us is never be 
satisfied. Now, Paul is absolutely satisfied in Christ, in his relationship with Christ. He's satisfied in his, uh, in his salvation. But he sees the holes in his sanctification. He sees that he's not who he wants to be. He sees that he has not yet become like Jesus. One of the things that I love about Paul is he's often using sports metaphors. He talks about boxing before there was Mike Tyson. He talks about wrestling before the days of Dan Gable and Cale Sanderson or Hulk Hogan if you like the fake stuff. He talks about uh, track and field most often though and specifically running. And so the illustration that he uses here is of running a race. He uses it all the time. I've heard it said the Christian life is a pursuit and not an arrival. And that's the idea that encompasses what we just read. The pursuit of spiritual growth, it actually begins with a dissatisfaction over our present spiritual condition. That we have to see that we have not arrived where we're going. And so yes, in Christ we are made holy and righteous and blameless in the eyes of God, and yet there's something that's still happening progressively in our lives called sanctification. We're becoming less like our old selves and more like Jesus. That's what he's doing inside of us. But we have to be unsatisfied with where we are. It begins, uh, our relationship with Jesus begins with a, with a recognition of a, of a spiritual brokenness, and that's actually how it progresses too. We have to recognize our sin, repent of it, and pursue Jesus. And what happens after that is this decreasing frequency of sin. And so um, you will look different when you encounter Jesus. When you become a Christian, you will be different than you used to be. Book of Corinthians teaches us that our old self has died, and behold, new life has come in Jesus. And we're, we're being changed from that old way. So our sin decreases in frequency, and our increasing appetite is for righteousness and holiness. See, there's this paradox that happens, and, and I even had the privilege of talking to Ben, who was just baptized yesterday, and one of the things that he shared that's so true of us is that when you're not a Christian, the things that a Christian views as sinful, you're like, those aren't big deals at all. You're not drinking like crazy. You're not committing rampant adultery. And let a, yet a Christian says, but if I lust after somebody, I'm committing adultery in my heart. That's Matthew chapter 5. Those are Jesus' words. You might be angry, but you're, you're not beating people up all the time. You're not murdering people. And yet Jesus says to have anger or hate in your heart towards somebody else, that is murder in your heart. You see, when you grow in Christ, the little sins feel like big sins because you know that they're keeping you from a close relationship with your father. Less sin feels like more. It's, it's this paradox. Um, and we're not perfect, but we're striving for it. Verse 12 and 13, this is, this is what it says again. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. The easiest way to become self-satisfied with where you are is by comparing yourself with other people. 
It's actually one of the easiest things to do in our Christian walk is to look at someone who's sitting across from you and go, that dude uses language I would never use. Look how much less angry I am. I, I'm not really patient, but I'm, I'm a lot more patient than that guy, and he's a believer, and so I'm further along in my walk, and yet that's not the standard by which a Christian ought to look at their life. Revelation 3.17 says it this way. I'm going to turn there for a second. For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pishable, poor, blind, and naked. I love that text because what it's, what it's teaching us is that we, we have this standard by which we measure ourselves, and yet we don't even often see our own sin. When we build ourselves up in pride, it actually blinds us to our own sin. But this is what it can look like. Psalm 42, 1 says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. It's this deep longing within us for more Jesus, more of him and less of me. One of the things I've been most convicted about is that I have all of this margin in my life time-wise that I'm not devoting to giving more to Jesus, to, to pursuing him more, to learning more about his scripture. One of the things that I've been so convicted about is that nobody has to know the Bible better than I do. And, and I don't mean that like, gosh, I'm so smart. It's just I have so many hours a week that I dedicate to useless stuff. I opened up the settings on my phone this week and went to the uh, screen time. If you want to feel really bad about yourself, open up the settings, go to screen time, and then look at where you spend your time daily. Hours and hours for me on Facebook and Twitter and Zillow and Instagram. Zillow hits hard, by the way. That, that one kind of hurts my feelings, even saying it out loud. It takes 70 hours on average to read the entire Bible. And the average person in this room spends 30 or more a week on their phone. Point number two, never get distracted. He says in verse 13, there's this phrase that we often cling to, but one thing I do, but one thing I do. It's so weird to imagine someone saying, but one thing I do. Because if you're like me, there seem like this endless list of things that we do, these thousand, if, if it was to be fair and accurate, we would just say this thousand things that I do. Students, the way you balance school and athletics and friends and TikTok and everything else, you, you feel like there are these thousand things that you do. Moms in this room, these thousand things that you're balancing, the way that you have to make sure that your kids are well-fed and that they're doing their homework or that they're well-dressed or that they're dressed for the elements of the day because it's Ohio and those could change at any moment and these thousand things that you do. It feels silly to say that, like, come to my house, Paul. Come to my house and tell me this one thing you do. And yet what he's really saying is that our minds ought to be focused on the finish line at all times, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the prize, the goal. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. James 1, 8 actually calls people who live this life where they're just constantly looking around. He says, you're double-minded and unstable in all your ways. 
So what does he mean, this one thing I do? He means refocus everything we do as worship. Refocus everything we do. Make sure that it's in line with this race that we're running. And so your job and your marriage, we're representing Christ in every single thing that we do. We're focused on pursuing him, on magnifying him, on making much of who Jesus is and growing in our walk with him. And we do that in our marriage and at work and we do it at sporting events. And we do it online. Everything ought to be funneled toward Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says it this way about himself. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. The King James Version uses the word uh, expedient. It's it's actually from this root, the, the original language and King James kind of pull from this idea of an expedition. That you're going somewhere. Will it help? Will this thing help me get there? If this thing doesn't help me get there, it's not really useful for my life. And if we really filter everything through that mindset, what falls off? I've heard John Piper talk about it this way and talking about another illustration Paul uses in the book of Hebrews where he says, I run with endurance the race that's set before me, throwing off the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. And so it kind of boils down to this question. Do the things in my life help me run? Do the things in my life help me run or are they weight? Are they sin or are they weight? There's a difference. These things can be sinful and then there are just these other things that are baggage. They're not part of this expedition. Does it fall off? Well, does it help me run? So never get distracted. The next thing, never look back. Verse 13 says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. It's this idea of an Olympic runner. Olympic runners are actually trained to never look back. At the risk of losing their momentum and losing the race, they're not to look back. They're they're even trained to forget about the previous races because they have no bearing on the race that's about to happen. A lot of us get paralyzed by our past, the things that we've done. Past victories, past failures, past grudges. Well, Paul could have done the same thing. As a matter of fact, he had greater past victories than any of us can imagine. As he's writing this, he'd already planted very successful churches. He'd already been a major catalyst in getting the gospel outside of the Jewish people and into the Gentiles. He'd already been an incredibly successful church planter, doing things for the glory of God and not for his own glory, and yet he forgot what what went behind all the past victories. A lot of us have past victories that, that we sort of just rest on. Do we want our greatest spiritual moments to be from our teenage years at youth camp? Do we want our greatest spiritual moments to be our wedding or that time when we went to that conference, or can they be ahead of us? What about past failures? Well, goodness gracious, Paul used to be Saul. Paul had past failures that we can hardly relate to. Killing Christians, dragging 
mothers and fathers away from their children to take them to be prosecuted, thrown in jail, and eventually killed. He was responsible for the imprisonment and death of so many people. Yet he wasn't going to look to his left or his right. He wasn't going to look behind him. He was going to fix his eyes on Jesus. What about past grudges? Paul had every reason to have a past grudge. He had every reason in the moment, uh, even those in the Christian community hardly believed him for a while because of who he used to be. But those who used to be his friends now hated him and, and wanted him dead. He was regularly beaten. People attempted to kill him all the time. He was attacked. He was imprisoned. He had every reason to have a past grudge, and yet he didn't. And so what does it mean uh, to, to forget what lies behind? Does it mean that we mentally cannot think of it? That's not what it means. It's easy to think that when someone says, well, God forgets all of your sins, that there's this programming that goes on in his mind where they're just actually gone. But what it means is, Hebrews 10, 17, uh, God says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. What he means is those will never be held against you again. And that's incredible news. Because of what Jesus has done, because of the forgiveness that he purchased for you, those will never be held against you again. And in the same way, what it means to forget what lies behind is that you won't be controlled or influenced by it anymore. That you won't rest on your victories, you won't be trapped by your failures, you won't be bogged down by the weight of your grudges, but you can pursue Jesus in this race. Fourth thing, never give up. Verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The language here actually gives us this idea of someone pushing as hard as they can to get to the finish line. As if it's a sprint, but you're just using every single muscle fiber in your body. You're pumping your arms as hard as you can. You're, you're pushing your quads and Every single thing that you have is just straining like it's going to break. Like it's our last moment to pursue Jesus, but that's every single moment. What prize is he talking about? Well, actually, the, the answer is the same reason that God saved Paul. What's the prize and, and why did he save him? Well, God didn't save Paul to rescue him from eternity, Apart from him, that, that's not the point of saving him. That's, that's, a, that's a byproduct. That's an overflow of him being saved. He didn't save Paul because of the potential of who he could be. He saved Paul to make him like Jesus. You see, we see that in Scripture. We see that in this text, but we also see it in Romans 8.29. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I want you to know today, God saved you to change you. God saved you to change you. And that change inside of you causes us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's something inside of us that when we're excited about what God's done in our life, we can't keep quiet about it. And so God saves us to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Because the truth is, if we don't become like Jesus... Our testimony and our evangelism doesn't carry the same weight. Who wants to have someone share Jesus with them that's the biggest jerk at work? He saves us to change us. 
It says never give up. No one plans on giving up. That's one of the most interesting things about someone saying never give up is no one's like, it's a good thing you said that. I was just about to. Never give up. Uh, Pastor Brad this week had talked about how in those moments where, where he's counseling a couple that's about to get married, no one just sits there and goes, yes, we're so excited. We figure we'll give this marriage about five years. Five years, and we'll just kind of see how it's working out. We're going to build a contract for this, and if she breaks it, you know, marriage is, is gone. And no one who's getting married goes, this is going to not work out. I'm gonna, we're going to give up in five or six years, and yet 51% of marriages end in divorce. No one plans it. It happens because we don't have a plan of pursuit with Jesus. And so here's, here's what we see right here. That we can protect ourselves by disciplining ourselves. The, the way that Paul uses sports imagery over and over is that we're ought, we ought to discipline ourselves for the work that's ahead. These, these disciplines of grace, what we often call spiritual disciplines of our walk. That these are prayer, they're worship, they're gathering as a community of believers, they're reading the word of God, they're memorizing the word of God, they're meditating on the word of God, that we have these ways that we can build success into this walk, and it's when we pursue Jesus. Even in prison, Paul was never satisfied, never distracted, he never looked back, he he never gave up, and As we kind of come to the end of Paul's ministry, one of the last things he ever writes is the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4 actually gives us this incredible testimony of who Paul is and how we ought to pursue with everything we have because life is is short. And one of the things that I really want to emphasize is these are his final words before he was beheaded. Like he saw the end in sight, and yet it was worth continuing to run this race, even though it had cost him everything. He'd gained Christ. But the final thing that if Paul were here today, I think he would say is get in the race. It kind of sounds obvious. But you can't win a race that you never enter. My daughter likes to collect sticks. I don't know why. But when we go for walks, we have this little basket on the front of the stroller that we put my son in. And she just collects sticks the entire time. We come back with about 40 sticks, and then for some reason, one of the weirdest things is that the, na- the neighborhood kids, the, the kids in the other apartments nearest, they come and take her sticks all the time. Like sticks are currency to three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. One of the weirdest things about sticks is, or would be, if, if my daughter grabbed a stick and thought that she was bringing it in to provide food for us in some way, that, that this apple tree stick is going to provide apples for the family. We know that that would be the silliest thing ever because a stick that is separated from the tree could never produce fruit. And yet we actually try to do that in our walk with Jesus. We try to produce Christian fruit in our lives 
without ever being connected to the vine of Jesus. We cannot win a race that we never entered. We cannot run with endurance a race that's set before us when Jesus has not changed our lives, when we've never entered into a relationship with them. You know, one of the most amazing testimonies I know is my wife's testimony. Because everybody in her circle growing up considered her their big Christian influence. She was the one who led Bible studies. Where she worked, um, they would stop cussing around her because they knew that she was the good Christian girl. She was the one that, that led the prayers that people looked up to, and yet she didn't know Jesus until after high school. She'd worked as hard as she could to get to know God, but it wasn't until she was 19 when God changed her heart and Christian fruit began to grow. It wasn't until then that she entered into the race. We actually heard a very similar testimony not too long ago from Ben. It's really, really exhausting to try to run a race without the Holy Spirit empowering you to run. And that's what it's like to try to be a Christian, live as a Christian without actually knowing Jesus. Paul was sincere in his faith as a Jew. He was dedicated. He was well-read. He'd memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament scriptures. He was zealous. He was energetic. But he was not converted But Jesus chased him down. Has that happened to you? When I was 14 years old, at church camp, that happened to me. I'd grown up in church at, at eight years old. I thought I was baptized and, and following Jesus. And, and I knew all the answers to all the questions. And, and I even remember looking around my class at 12 years old and going, I'm probably the nicest person in this entire class. I don't know why kids think that way, but, but that was my thing. Since I wasn't the fastest or most athletic, or, I'm probably the nicest, though. A couple years later, though, Jesus got a hold of me. And everything that I'd kind of built up pridefully in my heart of who I was and how I'd kind of was so good that I'd probably earn God's praise and favor, it was, it was washed away in a moment, and all of that stuff became rubbish, all of it became worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. I hope that's happened for you. And if it has, as we close, tell somebody. Find people who don't know Jesus and tell them of the change in your life. This is the mission of Paul. And this is God's mission for us as believers is to go, therefore, into the world and preach the gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to make disciples. You never know what's going to become of the people that you share the gospel with. Um, Edward Kimball is one of the most famous Christians, and he's famous for not being famous. You'll understand why. He's, he's not this big evangelist. He wasn't a preacher who traveled the whole world. He wasn't a church planter. He was a dry goods salesman who agreed to teach Sunday school for junior high boys. And the most difficult student in his class was a young man named Dwight. He was biblically clueless. He was disruptive. He was unbelievably frustrating. 
But Edward Kimball didn't give up. He wasn't content with seeing those boys one day a week. He wanted to be part of their lives. And so one day he decided he would go to the uh, shoe store where Dwight worked and tell him more about Jesus. He felt like the Spirit was just, hey, this is someone you need to talk to. So, so he went there, uh, as, as God's call is on all of our lives, and he said uh, his fears just started to get the best of him. As he was about to enter that place, he was scared to have to go and just blatantly share the gospel. But he went to the back room where Dwight was, and he says, I simply told him of Christ's love for him and of the love Christ wanted in return. And there in the back room of the shoe store, Dwight experienced that love himself. And years later, Dwight said, I had not felt that I had a soul until that moment. Well, in subsequent years, Dwight would share that same love of Jesus with multitudes across America and beyond. The world would know him as the great 19th century evangelist Dwight L. Moody. He even founded the Moody Bible Institute. You see, when we're obedient, God opens doors for us to share with people what he's done in our lives. And we never know what's going to become of these people. But what an incredible opportunity we have today to walk outside of these places, uh, to walk outside of this church, outside of these doors, and into a mission field for Jesus. And share with the cousin we know that doesn't know him. And share with the brother we know that doesn't know him. And share with the the people that we work with who don't know him. Because we don't know what God's going to do, but we can trust him with the outcome. Would you pray with me? Father, today we are gathered in this place, Lord, just to make much of you. God, we're reminded from the life of Paul to never be satisfied, to never get distracted, to never look back, to never give up. But God, first, we have to get in the race. God, there are people in this room who don't know you. Even beyond the walls of this place, watching at home, there are probably people who don't know you, who have, who have tried their hardest to live a spiritual and God-pleasing life, and yet they've never re- recognized their sin, repented of their sin, and followed you. And, and put their faith in you for the forgiveness of their sins. God, I pray that your spirit would speak to them now. God, move in their hearts and minds. God, bring them to repentance. God, thank you so much that we even have the opportunity to know you because of what Jesus has done for us. God, for those that don't know you, I pray they find you today. And yet, God, for those who do know you, God, your Holy Spirit indwells us and propels us in pursuit of Christ's likeness. God, I pray that you would make me more like him and less like me. Let that be our prayer this week, that we would not be satisfied with the remaining sin that's in our lives that we so often allow to entangle us and slow us down, the sin and the weight that so easily entangles us. God, let us identify the things that slow us down from running. Let us identify the things that that don't help us run, God, and throw them off in pursuit of a single-minded 
race toward Jesus. And God, give us boldness as we share this message. If you're in this place and you don't know Jesus, don't leave this place without talking to somebody, without praying with somebody. I'd love to talk to you after this service. Pastor Brad would love to talk to you after this service. We want to tell you where life and hope and joy is found. It's only in Jesus. God, we love you. In Jesus' name.